0: Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, I'm very uh, excited kind of I guess you can say for this topic uh, because just because I think it's one of those topics that uh, floats around a, a lot of People's conversations, social media pages, and news feeds. There's so much discussion on it, and so many times when people show me what this person said, what that person said, uh, what he said, what she said, I'm always like uh, wanting to bash my head against the wall basically and being like, oh my god, this is absolute nonsense. So, having a platform to be able to actually dispel a lot of this and to be able to provide Some education on this regard is something that I think is very uh, important Uh, So inshallah ta'ala, today we're going to go through um, what you see in front of you So it's a bit of an ambitious uh, agenda for this evening inshallah But I think we'll be able to get there There's obviously a lot more when it comes to the topic of the Islamic perspective of things And actually going into detail the stories of the companions, going into detail Minute aspects of Islamic law and nuance in Islamic law and and these sorts of things and other misconceptions But I think inshallah ta'ala we'll probably tackle that in other themes and topics inshallah Uh, And then uh, of course a brief overview at the end of kind of these modern movements uh, Looking at feminism very broadly again feminism is something that I mean it's an entire university department to begin with women's studies right Uh, So to be able to summarize that in just 10-15 minutes Keep in mind obviously a lot of the nuance will be lost But we'll try to keep that nuance in inshallah as well And there'll be a few interesting activities uh, along the way So the concept and the topic of masculinity and femininity It's so important because it gets to that issue of identity It's about who are you as a person Who are you supposed to be What are you supposed to act like What type of personality are you supposed to have? What temperament are you supposed to have? Both for men and for women. And especially in a society where the very notion of gender is being questioned, that's obviously then going to become something confusing for Muslims, men and women both. And then when you add on top of that, the question of, well, wait a second, is there an actual religious obligation for certain things here? What is religiously obligated? What is cultural? What is societal? All that stuff. So it's very complicated. So I think this is a good way of kind of Breaking it down bit by bit by bit So this is really going to start From the foundations From the fundamentals So we want to start from the building blocks So we're going to go into the issue of well, Wait a second, are there gender differences to begin with? When we're talking about masculinity and femininity Is that even such a thing? Because obviously, as we're going to come to There are many voices who will say That's actually not a thing There is no such thing as masculinity femininity These are just social constructs Uh, that don't really describe reality as such but they actually create reality meaning we label them male, female, man, woman and that creates the difference but there was actually no difference there to begin with so we're going to go over that inshallah that will be gender differences then we're going to go through okay, once we understand there are differences between men and women then from an Islamic point of view are there gender roles that are expected from us? are there things that as a Muslim woman I have to do? And are there things as a Muslim man, I have to do? Are there things that are optional? Are there things that are up to me? Are there things that are up to the family and how they wish to organize themselves? So that's going to be a bit about gender roles in Islam. Then we're going to turn to, and this is very important because this is something that is the case with almost every contemporary issue, any confusion differing amongst Muslims, we have to return to that first generation of Islam uh, Will You really realize when you study the first generation of Islam How intelligent, how forward-thinking And how much of an incredible generation it is And people will say, oh, well, you know, that's 1400 years ago How is it relevant? It's all relevant You just have to have the mind to see the parallels And understand how it's relevant So I'm going to just take us through the examples of some of the uh, Sahaba of the Prophet Sallallahu That will help us understand Okay, I understand their gender differences Okay, there may be some roles That are for men and for women Or maybe they're not, we're going to go over that inshallah. But then it's like me as an individual My interests, the things that I'm passionate about The things that I want to be They don't necessarily fit to be stereotypically male Or typically female Do I have to repress that aspect of me? And do I have to kind of suppress that and say, oh no, I should just be as a Muslim woman, I should be like a woman, and as a Muslim man, I should be like a man, and I should suppress these aspects of my personality. So we're gonna go over some examples of the Sahaba to shed some light on that. Uh, And then inshallah, after that background, then we'll be ready with that background, with that preface, with that uh, background knowledge, to then understand feminism, the red pill movement and whatnot. Without that background, It's just, it's a mess, honestly, and that's what it's become when subhanAllah, you look online, amongst Muslim spaces, when discussing these things, wallahi, it's a complete mess. It's a complete mess, it's sad, the level of discourse, it's sad, the level of understanding uh, that you see, Uh, and it's sad to see uh, the voices, of course, that are the most heard and the most viewed. Are not the voices that are the most intelligent or the most knowledgeable about Islam or the most scholarly at all. They're the ones who are the most savvy with social media, knowing how to get YouTube clicks and all these things. They become these influencer personalities, and Subhanallah, many Muslims then look up to them. You know, they're they're seen in online space as a person of influence, as a person of some level of religious, uh, you know, validation or qualification. But in reality, Subhanallah. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth Uh, So that's inshallah on stock for today So let's start with gender differences Masculinity and femininity This part's going to be a bit academic So I do apologize But there's going to be an interesting activity afterwards That will make up for that Um, So when we say what is masculine And what is feminine What is a man, what is a woman And when we talk about these things We need to understand Just to cut through everything Make it very clear what we're talking about are temperaments. We're not talking about your biological, uh, you know, uh, uh, gender. We're not talking about your, your, whether you're a man or a woman from a biological point of view. When you're talking about masculinity, and femininity, these are temperaments. They're personality patterns that are associated with each biological gender. Does that make sense? So a woman, femininity are a set of personality variables that are typical and average, on average, for women. And we call that femininity. Masculinity is a set of personality variables, a pattern of personality variables, of temperament, that is associated and typical, on average, for biological men. Does that make sense? That's the first key point. Now. For an individual, for an individual woman, or for an individual man What is it that influences their general personality? So that has to do with your genes and your hormones, right? So the level of testosterone for the man is obviously much higher The level of estrogen for women is much higher And that manifests, that physiological difference Manifests as personality traits as well As we know, testosterone is associated with Risk-associated behavior, competition, these sorts of things Uh, And progesterone and estrogen and these sorts of things are not as associated with that type of, uh, those types of behaviors So genes and hormones are a big contributor to your overall personality of who you are So I put those as, as red because those are individual factors So that's basically how Allah created you And Allah created you in other ways as well But as you are physically, that's who you are physiologically Your genes and your hormones so that has a huge impact on your personality and your temperament. For men, it will drive them towards more masculine traits. For women, it will drive them towards more feminine traits. This is rooted in genes and on your, level, and, and your hormone levels. And within genes as well are things that run in the family, right? So there are certain personality variables that are associated with genetic traits that then get passed on to the next generation. You know, people who are a bit more in a maybe a, like... A, Uh, a bit more, we'll get into the personality variables later on, I won't introduce them now, but anyways, sometimes there's a level of personality that's hereditary and are common towards particular families as well. So genes and hormones, that is part, but look at the green aspect. This is environment. So the first one is, it is an individual. The second one here is, your environment. So from an environmental point of view, there is a lot of influence on your personality. Family, so I don't mean by that genetically, I mean like your family culture. Your family itself will have a huge impact on the type of personality that you'll have and the type of interest that you'll have and the type of ways of relating to other people the things that you're afraid of, the things that you like to do your passions the family is a huge contributor to that in particular early childhood experiences your relation with your parents how your parents treated you was there abuse, was there trauma was there, how was it when you first encountered, you know uh, know, uh, uh, how was it when you first uh, encountered uh, failure how was the reaction to that all these things are going to have a profound impact on your personality So family is a big one. Then community. You'll see, for instance, if you go like, um, I'm not as familiar within Australia as much as I'm comfortable discussing within like North America, you'll go from Philadelphia to New York, they talk different, there's a different culture, there's a different attitude, there's a different interest, and then you compare that to California, for example. A California person versus a New Yorker. Like different communities, they are different. Temperamentally, personality-wise, they're different. New Yorker, very hard, very tough, tough love type of thing. You know, very straight, don't talk to anybody, etc. etc. California, very different. Might have the same genes, hormones but and family, but community, different communities. So we see how community has an effect on personality. Country as well. Huge differences in the Muslim community that I see in Australia, even within Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria, Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, different cultures, different, like you see the Muslims, they are different. And so there's an aspect there of the community, and even the country at large as well, that has an impact on, your, on, your, on the way that you are, the way that you behave. And then lastly, behind this all is culture. And from culture, I don't mean like ethnicity or race, Although that's a part of it, I also mean from a religious point of view as well, religious culture. That also has an impact on the type of person that you will become as well. So you see here, personality, very complicated, so many layers, so many influences that make you who you are. This is just a summarized kind of version, right? Um, gender is a part of that, of course. And we talked about that because it goes back down to genetics and hormones and physiology and whatnot. So that's obviously going to play an important role in the type of person that you are. Is that all clear at this point? Excellent. Alrighty, Bismillah. So, as I said, it's going to get a bit academic. Uh, This was a study that was actually done in 2011 uh, in the States, but there was about 2,000 participants in Toronto, actually, my hometown. And basically, they did a very large survey to see, are there personality differences between men and women? So here now, they're trying to control for all the other things, like we went up there, all those other green things, They're controlling for that and saying, no, I just want to focus on gender only. To be able to see, is there something that is a masculine archetype or a feminine archetype? So you can see here on the slide, I've just summarized it in the table there, the big five uh, personality theory. Who here has heard of the big five personality theory? Just a show of hands. Many of you are familiar with it. So within each of the five domains, so the big five personality theory, for those who aren't aware, basically is a theory that All personality variables go back to these five fundamental ones. Uh, And this is basically the way to describe your temperament, your behavioral interests, all these things, your attitudes and whatnot, right? Uh, The way you approach the world, the way that you understand things. Um, So these are the five general personality traits. Within each five, there are these two domains within each five. And so they looked at, within each of these five traits, Are there differences, basically, between genders? So, to be very quick, Extroversion is, of course, someone who's oriented to the external world rather than introversion, which is internal world. Extroverts like to explore the world. They like to interact with the world around them, etc., etc. Introverts are more uh, interested in their own internal state, things that are closer to them rather than outside. Generally speaking, that's why introversion is associated with higher intelligence and IQ, because they're more interested in what's happening inside their mind. Uh, So introverted people are smarter uh, uh, on general than extroverted people. So there you go. Um, the second one is agreeableness Agreeableness is Essentially your approach to conflict People who are conflict averse And wish for harmony that are, These are people who are described as agreeable Generally people who are compassionate, kind Wanting to relate well with other people They're high in agreeableness Obviously disagreeable, not afraid of conflict Very much focused on negotiation Getting what they want, etc, cetera, etc cetera. Conscientiousness Is the, uh, you can say like your discipline, uh, working hard, that sort of thing, uh, is conscientiousness. It's your ability to, um, not problem solve, it's your ability to actually basically get done what you want to get done. That's your conscientiousness, working hard and these sorts of things, work ethic. Neuroticism is your propensity to experience negative emotion. So anxiety and worry, are you a worrier? You know, people say, are you a worrier? Do you worry a lot? Are you anxious quite, quite a bit? Are you very volatile with your emotions? That's neuroticism. Uh, And then openness, openness uh, is either to experience or ideas So openness is basically associated with people who are creative So like art and these sorts of things, that's openness Or even ideas, philosophy, like abstract ideas Like philosophy and these sorts of things Uh, So that's openness in general Openness again is the one that's associated as well with intelligence So when it comes to masculine and feminine You can see the domains there So they did find statistically significant differences between men and women. And keep in mind, this is in Toronto, which is a very kind of liberal kind of place, and obviously the West, which is already kind of trying to break down barriers between men and women. So the fact that they're still finding differences here uh, only kind of uh, makes this point very clear that obviously there are... Personality differences between men and women Of course if you were to do this study Like in a more culturally traditional place Or you know, in, in the Middle East Or in, um, in Asia These would be even much more pronounced of course This is obviously in the West But they're still finding this um, So assertiveness is associated, with masculine, uh, is, is associated with men So obviously men are by and large more assertive But for women So their extraversion is more about their enthusiasm Rather than assertiveness Um, Agreeableness, that's one of the largest personality differences that you find between men and women and women are by and large a lot more higher uh, in agreeableness than men, both in compassion and in politeness Uh, Conscientiousness, you see there men associated more with industriousness and and, and for women, more orderliness so orderliness is basically um, uh, how it sounds, right? basically uh, ordered spaces Uh, hygiene, that sort of thing, having their you know uh, schedule organized, being organized, that sort of thing. Industriousness is more work ethic, hard work, that sort of thing. Um, Neuroticism, uh, both uh, are actually for the women, volatility and withdrawal, which is kind of basically withdrawing from uh, a confronting experience. And then openness, men are generally associated more with ideas, and feminine with, uh, and women more with experience. So that's what the research shows. But I just want to make it clear. I did, I've been emphasizing this point, oh, there are differences. But I also want to make clear on top of that, this is what we're talking about. Now, yes, I did say this is in Toronto, et cetera, et cetera. But even still, you have, so those are two curves, right? Bell curves, we're all familiar with how these work. So uh, the, uh, the dotted line one is the, is, is the woman, and the other one is the man. So this is the most pronounced. So, those are the two distribution curves. There's a lot of overlap, isn't there? When we say this trait is more associated with women, that doesn't mean men don't have that trait. It just means that they have it at a higher proportion statistically. But look at that area of similarity within the curve it's massive. This is just a shift showing that women are more. But men also have this trait. So then, What does it mean if a man has a feminine trait? As we're trying to say that these terms are actually not very useful terms when you think about them We're going to come to it's a bit more useful But when we talk about the masculine temperament and the feminine temperament Yes, there's an important point to understand that in a certain context which we're going to come to But in general, just because something is considered feminine, it doesn't mean that men don't have that trait either And vice versa when it comes to disagreeableness, or, all, or industriousness, or openness to ideas, it doesn't mean women are just like, no, nothing, not interested at all. That's not it at all. So that's what we're talking about here. So I just wanted to show you that visually, so you get an appreciation for that. And this is on, like I said, the, the largest kind of personality difference. Now keep in mind, as I said, it'll probably be a bit more if you go to different places. So actually, they did look at, within Toronto, different ethnicities. So they did like Asian... Uh, versus um, uh, white, essentially, Canadian. And um, you can see that actually the variance was actually less uh, within those communities, within Asian ethnic background communities in agreeableness. So it was actually more pronounced uh, generally when you just isolated the Asian background. So these are not Asians living in Asia. These are Asians in Toronto. So they're just ethnically, background is different. So you see actually that the variance actually uh, went down. Anyways, what is the point with all this about the fact that we have all these different personality variables and whatnot, uh, and there's a masculine set of traits that are typically considered male versus female. So like when we go here, that's basically something that we're approximating of the best models that we have, the feminine prototype and the masculine prototype from a personality point of view. That's what you're looking at there, right? From the research. So that's associated with masculinity. That's associated with femininity. But what if you find that, well, wait a second, I'm a man, and I'm kind of interested in art, or you know I'm quite you know, conflict-averse, and I'm kind of a bit of a people-pleaser. Does that mean that's a problem with me? I'm not quote-unquote man enough, da-da-da. No, that's not what it means at all. We'll go back to this slide. You understand your personality is not just coming from your gender. There are many other influences. There are many other things that might have made you more into that kind of um, uh, agreeableness, people pleaser. You know, Subhanallah. I see uh, Sidki here in the audience. Um, he's gonna, inshallah, do a, um, a presentation for us. He does a lot of work um, and is certified as well in this emotion-centered uh, therapy between parents and children, and understanding the early childhood experiences when it comes to um, children and whatever trauma they might have faced from their parents, and then how it manifests later in life, and oftentimes with, especially with men and with. Uh, who are maybe not as assertive, some of that goes back to how they were treated when they showed anger in their families, where they really shown that you're not allowed to show your anger here, et etc. Et which then would make them less assertive and these sorts of things. So sometimes a lot of that stuff is coming from trauma uh, in the back and not because of some personal weakness of this particular person. Seems like a very random uh, activity, but it was a lot of uh, thought put behind that actually. But the point just to highlight there is of course, um, you see, Uh, Gender differences in our personalities, the way we approach issues, the way we relate to others, and whatnot Because each personality trait is a way uh, of problem solving It's a way of trying to solve a problem that you see in the world So agreeableness is a way of, is a strategy of resolving conflict, right? Openness is a way of resolving scarcity of resources, for instance, right? You You can boil a lot of these traits down to strategies That's what they are So there are Strategies that, generally speaking, men have built up over their, you know, life, over their adolescent, and as they grow up, and these traits that they have are more refined, and they're able to utilize that in a way that's very beneficial for them. Similarly, for women as well. So the feminine traits and the masculine traits in that way. Now, now we get to this point here, and this is the, mo- mo- the I guess, really the meat and potatoes of this, um, the talk, which is the question of, okay, there's... Masculinity and femininity, their personality differences. Um, and I understand, and we're going to come to more explicitly that, as an individual, I may have traits that are considered feminine or I may have traits that are considered masculine from the opposite gender. I may be more oriented in that direction as well for whatever reason, culture, community, family upbringing, school, all these things, and we're gonna talk about that as well, But whether or not there's these influences from society and media uh, amongst women and amongst men to kind of push them more into the opposite gender type of traits. So there's that aspect as well that's going to be influencing your, your personality. So now, that's fine, that's who you are. Now the question is, is there something by virtue of you being a woman, and by virtue of you being a man, that is expected from you as a Muslim? And there are a few things. Now, when it comes to the... So I split it up into three things. So family unit, ibada, and Siasa, And Siasa is like politics. So for the first one is the family unit. And this is the, 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 the focus, really, of when you see the true differences between the genders in Islam. It's in the arena of the family Outside of that, very few Pretty much almost the same Aside from the two I just put there for the sake of completeness, really Um, Outside of the family unit, everything is really the same between a Muslim woman and a Muslim man, generally speaking So, when it comes to the family unit What is it that is uh, expected uh, from the woman? So, from a uh, uh, female point of view I put it as responsibilities of marriage and rights of marriage So when it comes to responsibilities of marriage uh, For the woman uh, It is, generally speaking Child-rearing And accepting the leadership of the husband These are the two main things as As the responsibility of a woman In a marriage contract Because obviously a marriage contract It's a social contract of coming together For the sake of some khair and some goodness in society Now, the responsibility for the man Is the Financial, physical, and spiritual security of the family. And so, rights follow responsibilities. Because the man is responsible for the financial, the physical, and spiritual as well, so that's the religious orientation as well and whatnot, of the family. Then the leadership is, of course, then given to the man Because that is what is, he's responsible for He's responsible for the economic decisions, the financial decisions, all these things Because that's literally what he's responsible for um, And same thing as well with the uh, physical security and these sorts of things uh, And as well the spiritual security as well Now, the rights of the woman Because her responsibility is for child rearing um, And when we talk about child rearing, by the way, we're talking about... Uh, Obviously, pregnancy, giving birth, and of course, breastfeeding. That's what we're talking about. I want to make that clear. Um, When we're talking, now we're talking fiqh here, by the way. We're talking Islamic law. This is different than how people may choose to organize and whatnot. Um, So that's what we talk about child rearing. And by the way, I put in brackets compensation with compensation. Some of the madahib actually say that the woman can actually uh, demand payment, basically, for breastfeeding, or she can say, and it's her right to say, no, you're going to hire a wet nurse, basically, or you're going to hire someone else to breastfeed this child. Um, But anyways, uh, so the the right of the woman is nafaqa, so that's spending uh, And as well, uh, the right of the woman is of course the mahr, beforehand Uh, And so the test of course in the marriage from the woman's point of view Is that aspect of accepting the leadership of the husband And that's an important aspect that's there within the family structure uh, The typical family structure, the default family structure of the Muslim household And of course because the woman is her own individual, and the level of humility that it will take and sacrifice to be able to accept someone else's authority is something that is uh, a very admirable and a very um, uh, a very virtuous thing. And that's why the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "For the woman who does that, all eight gates of Jannah are open for them. Eight gates of Jannah open for that person." It shows you the level of virtue of taking one for the team, so to speak. Right? Even though your husband could be. You can be far more intelligent than your husband They can be whatever, da, 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 but just for the sake of understanding This is the way that we can function as a family unit, etc, cetera, etc cetera. That is the important point Now, that's the general structuring you can say within the family unit That's the default So when someone gets married, this is the default Now, what if someone comes along and says Well, wait a second We're not a- You know, I, I married a person He's not able to afford our lifestyle I have to work as well and sometimes the man will actually say that, like, oh, I need you to work as well. We want to send our kids to Islamic school that costs this. We want to be in this neighborhood away from this one. It's more safe, all these things. And so then now the woman's having to work as well. So then with that, so this is default, as I said. Because now the woman is doing this, then now she has more stake when it comes to the authority and leadership, obviously. Because now she's contributing to what was initially the, her right and was the responsibility of the man but now if this is the case and society is evolving and whatnot, and this is required then obviously then so do you understand these aren't fixes oftentimes the confusion is these are fixed and then if oh I forego my right here then it's still binding the, the, the other things no it's not how it works res, rights always res, uh, follow responsibility the reason why the husband has those rights is not just because they have XY chromosome it's because they took the responsibility of the financial, the physical, and the spiritual security of the family household. That's the reason. And if he no longer does that, then guess what? He no longer has the right to his leadership and authority. He's lost it. In fact, if he's completely neglected with it, the woman can do what she pleases. She can uh, ask for a divorce. She can, you know, uh, at that point in time, if she went to a court system, she has all the rights because the husband has forgone his responsibility. Um. So especially with modern family households and the increasing cost of living that you find in the Western world, dual income families is almost the default. And so when it comes to this, this traditional way that people have in their head of women going to cook for me and clean and this, 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 all these things. By the way, when it comes to serving the husband, all the Madahib are in agreement that this is not part of the default marriage contract. So when it comes to technically speaking, the rights or the responsibility of the husband, so we spoke about accepting the leadership and child rearing, that is the responsibility of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the mother and of the wife uh, Cleaning the house, cooking, all this stuff, you know, upkeep of the house That is technically not, and all the Madahib agree, including the Vahiris, uh, So the fifth one as well They all agree this is not part of the right of the husband Having said that, actually Ibn Taymiyyah disagreed with this He said it was And all the Madahib also said this as well That from a fairness point of view If the husband is going out and he's working 10-12 hours and he's doing this and taking care of this and bringing all this thing and then he comes home and now he's expected to do this, this, this that's not fair and that's obviously going to be an issue, right? So from that point of view, from a fairness point of view, from an urf point of view, from a kindness point of view for the sake of the marriage, all Muslim scholars and those Madahib as well would encourage that equitable distribution of the labor in the family essentially But if the woman is also working, then it's going to have to be equitable then at that point. And we see this example with Ali and Fatima They actually divided the household chores amongst themselves. That was the model that they did. Uh, and of course we know as well, the Prophet would take care of his own affairs as well at home when it comes to his shoes upkeep and these sorts of things as well. But obviously from a marriage point of view, you can think about it, how unfair it would be, if the man is working this, 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 and contributing everything and doing everything from that point of view, and then he comes home and he has to do like a second job again That's obviously not fair But technically speaking from a rights point of view It's not that it's, this is the job of the wife per se It's something that is dependent on each individual couple And it becomes something that how they choose The, the Qur'an says وَعَاشِرُهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ And live with them بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Ma'roof is what is known to be good Ma'roof is what is in mutual kindness That's the higher layer of marriage This is just the bare bones law the actual spirit of marriage is to live with in kindness, to develop love and rahmah and these sorts of things. I hope that's all clear. And I don't want to go too much into detail about marriage and whatnot. We have a whole separate month now inshallah ta'ala for that. So we'll leave it at that inshallah. Anything else important here? No, that's it. Okay, I hope that's clear now, right? So Islam does affirm this as a default. That is the case. And it fits with the personality and the fitrah of generally men and generally women. Now if you have a situation like I said, where the woman is making all the money and the man is not, then obviously these things and the dynamics are going to change. And that's how it's, it's going to be. And there are ways to do this. But these are always going to be exceptions. The general rule is like this. That's the typical. If you're atypical, alhamdulillah, you're atypical. You know, that's a separate point. And you can still make everything work within the, uh, the boundaries of the Sharia. Okay. When it comes to ibadah, I'll just flip through these, these are obviously very clear in terms of gender differences So uh, imam of a mixed congregation that's non-family, I make that clear because there is a difference within the Hanbali Madhab Within your mahrams, maharim, whether or not a woman who knows the most Qur'an is actually the one that can lead their family For uh, voluntary prayers, like tarawih and these sorts of things, that's an opinion within the Hanbali Madhab But definitely from a uh, congregational point of view, non-mahram, etc, etc, that is for the man um, expectation for congregational salah of course Is only for the man The woman doesn't have to pray in congregation uh, uh, Three of, out of the four madahib say that it is wajib For the man to pray congregational salah For his obligatory prayers um, One of them say that it is a strong sunnah mu'akkada. Uh, None of the madahib authorized position Says it has to be in the masjid uh, Although that's an opinion within the Hanbali madhab um, But it has to be at least congregation Uh, Expectation of weekly Jum'ah, of course, for the man And then of course, I didn't put this here, like hijab obviously Is a thing that is different between men and women And then siyasa politics When it comes to politics, the only thing that is only for the man From a law point of view Is the Khalifa position, which is the general of the army, commander of the army, commander in chief and whatnot That is something that is meant for a man Everything else, technically speaking, you could have technically And there have been, throughout our history, women, uh, sultans uh, and sultanas, I should say uh, And uh, women who were in charge in different places Even women who led certain armies Like the, the queen of the pirates uh, In the Mediterranean Sea uh, Also Ismat Who was uh, the uh, transition from the Ayyubids to the Mamluks So Ayyubids, salahuddin's Literally, two three generations from that is Ismat Who actually takes charge of the Ayyubid dynasty And transitions it through in a very difficult time As they're fighting actually against the crusaders Anyways uh, Gender roles in Islam. That's it. Very good. Alhamdulillah. I went through that. Honestly, I saw that slide and I said, I so hope I don't go off into a billion tangents, and I think I did pretty well for myself. JazakAllah <laughs> Okay. Companions and personality variants. Now, we've emphasized up until this point, Personality differences Men and women are different, they're created different There's a temperament that's associated with women There's a temperament associated with men Therefore from an Islamic point of view Which is beautifully part of the justice and the fitrah and the harmony of the sharia That Islam has now come forward with a message and a system that fits with the men And fits with the natural constitution of the women For harmony of family and harmony of society That's very clear and the research here even supports that Now having said that And for reasons we're going to come to after inshallah in this society, there's obviously, go- and in any society, there's going to be some people who don't identify with that. There'll be some of you in the audience who are like, yeah, yeah, looking at all the masculine traits, like, yeah, that's totally me. Some of you from the, uh, from the sister side was looking at the feminine traits and saying, yeah, that's all totally me. Others will look at the other one and say, well, actually, I feel like I fit a bit more with, with that one. I feel like actually I'm a bit more kind of assertive, actually, as a woman. Or I feel like I'm a bit more passive as a man. Is that a problem? So I wanted to highlight these four Sahabas of the Prophet to make it clear that these were not, there's no liberal influence there, right? That this is the way Allah creates some people. Some men Allah has created in a way with more feminine characteristics, and some women Allah has created them in a way from more quote unquote masculine characteristics. That doesn't make them negative in the sight of Allah in any way. But rather, each person goes with what they have and they come to the Ummah and they come to Allah with that and they serve the Ummah how they can within the boundaries of the Sharia. So we first turn to Umar ibn Khattab, who's of course uh, uh, a man and of course very much embodying those typical masculine characteristics his assertiveness, his, you know, he was certainly not conflict averse, his focus on doing what is right and standing up for goodness you see now the good manifestations of those masculine traits. Because those masculine traits can be used for evil as well. But Umar al-Khattab used it, his sacrifice, subhanAllah. He'd go on his nightly rounds. He took it seriously, his responsibility to take care of the people. He would go on nightly rounds and make sure, is there anyone that's still hungry? Is there anyone that needs anything? As a khalifa of the most powerful uh, you know, uh, entity at that time, he's doing this, Umar al-Khattab. Um, so of course that's there And on the other one you have of course Khadija anha The supportive role that she took in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Embodied that kind of um, feminine energy you can say Her uh, level of commitment to Islam Her care for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Her consolement for her As well as And this is the point With Khadija anha In fact You know I was trying to even find I was thinking in my head About female sahabiyat And I was like Can I find a very typical kind of quote unquote feminine and every single example, Aisha, Khadija, Umm salamah all these different examples, I was like, well, wait a second, there's a lot of what we would consider masculine traits there. So I always try to go to the next one. And I said, perhaps that's my own bias coming from the West where I'm constantly being told, well, this is the way, you know, this is the masculine temperament, this is the feminine temperament. Perhaps this is the way that the women were in that time, which is different than they were now per se. Allahu alam. But Khadija, of course, is not a person that was, completely 100% passive herself. She was a person of wealth, she was a person who had property, she was a person that invested, she was a person that was relied upon for her financial means as well. But that didn't make her less of a woman, billah but she brought that feminine energy to the da'wah of Islam, and in the most perfect way, and manifested in the most perfect of, uh, of means. And that was her role of support of the da'wah, her emotional comforting of the Prophet wasallam, uh, and of course, her sacrifice as well. SubhanAllah, during the boycott, she didn't have to starve with the Muslims because she technically wasn't boycotted, but she chose to, to be a part of the community, to actually feel that sense of uh, uh, unity amongst people. And SubhanAllah, that was probably the, one of the reasons why she died shortly after that. SubhanAllah, Khadija radiallahu anha. Now, I want us to pay attention now at the other extremes. Hassan ibn Thabit radiallahu So he's a male companion of the Prophet. Didn't participate in a single battle his entire life before Islam, during Islam, you know, after the Prophet passed away. Not a single battle. Not because he had a physical handicap at all. That just was not from his personality. He would actually be with the women and children when the Battle of Khandak occurs, Battle of Ahzab. He was with the women and children. Now, by the way, I want to keep this clear, of course, we're talking about exceptions, and that's why they're exceptions. So obviously the generality is, you know, generally men are more masculine and women are more feminine. But I'm trying to highlight now, there's going to be a few exceptions that will be a bit more different. But look at the legacy Hassan عنه, left forward. He wasn't shamed, he wasn't told, oh, you're not a man, or oh, you're this and that, you know, made to feel inadequate. No, but instead, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam focused on what he could contribute, and he elevated it to such a level that the Ruhul Qudus, Jibreel himself, the Prophet testified, he is there with you and he is aiding you. What was Hassan ibn Thabit's, you know, trade? Poetry. It was poetry. So you can understand, you know, that kind of um, man that's more into art and that's a bit more kind of that type of um, uh, to temperament and whatnot. So Hassan ibn Thabit was a poet and that was his focus. And so he would be the prime person to respond to the poetry and the propaganda of the Quraysh. So in that time, the media, the Fox News, and the Channel 9, all this stuff, that was the poetry at the time, right? That was their, you know, uh, TikTok videos, and their this, this, that, and whatnot. It was the poetry that they would make. So they would see, oh, this poetry, now it's gone viral, literally. It'd be like, this poem's gone viral, and it's insulting Islam, it's insulting the Prophet Wasallam. And so then... The Prophet ﷺ would call who is going to come and respond to them. Hasab said, That's for me. Right? And that's his role. And he was so significant, he actually had in Masjid al Nabawi, you have the member of the Prophet ﷺ, and you had the member of Hassan ibn Thabit. So this was a man that was not shamed because he you know, he's or you're with the women and children, all this stuff, that type of attitude. No, it was understood, okay, that's how you are, that's how you are, then what can you do then? What can you do? And that's what he could do And that's what he used He figured out what he was good at And the Prophet ﷺ encouraged say Khalas, this is it for you then Now Nusayba Anha. SubhanAllah What can we say about Nusayba bint ka'ab Umm Ammar subhanAllah anha. One of the most inspirational companions you'll read about Is Nusayba Anha. She was a person Opposite of Hassan ibn Thabit But a woman who participated in Uhud In Khandak. Was there in Hudaybiyah? Was there in Hunain? Was there in Yarmouk This is after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. She was there of the few women So when the Medinans The people of Medina The Aus and the Khazraj Went to the Prophet ﷺ To give the Bay'ah To say we are with you And we're going to give you our allegiance she, And then the, 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 the Ka'b ibn Malik He says And there were with us Two or three women One of them was Nusaybar Radiallahu anha Nusaybah anha, subhanallah, she was the one on Uhud who was of the few, like there's a, maybe a handful, like ten companions that shielded the Prophet from the hundreds of people that are trying to kill him. The Prophet said this. This is his vivid memory of Uhud. I looked in front. I looked left. I looked right. I looked behind me, and all I saw was the sword of Nusaybah radhiyallahu anha, and she didn't come initially as a combatant, by the way. She came initially to provide support, nursing, whatnot. But when some of the Muslims started to flee, and Nusaybah recounts this I saw the Muslims were taking off their armor, throwing it out, and running away. Because obviously you want to be lighter, right? And they're throwing away their swords and whatnot. And Nusaybah says, At least give them to someone who's fighting. She sees what's on the floor, she picks up a shield. She picks up a sword and she goes straight into the chaos to the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam Allahu Akbar And she fiercely starts to defend And it, in some narrations it is said the Prophet SallAllahu said Because some people are running away and throwing He said, give your armor and your weaponry to those who are fighting Referencing and actually indicating Nusaybar RadiAllahu Anha SubhanAllah A warrioress A woman of great strength and bravery Can you imagine putting yourself in that scenario you have no armor. You are not armed at all for this at all. And it's not just overnight you just wake up, oh yeah, I'm going to fight in a battle with a sword and a shield. This is obviously a, a woman, رضي الله عنها, who actually had training, had done this, was clearly interested in this type of thing, who was then able to do that on the day of Uhud when it mattered. Wasn't shamed, oh, that's Aib. Astaghfirullah, what are you doing? You're going in, there's men there, and you're going to have your shield and your sword. أعوذ billah Astaghfirullah. No And She was a member and participated in all the battles after that Because they saw her value that came to the army Now to make this clear This is of course an exception This is not all the female Sahabiyat The vast majority were not of that caliber of course But this is to show If a woman Is of that interest Of that temperament That's how Allah created them Islam isn't going to then suppress that and say No you stay here and you do this this and be quiet No Islam is all about Utilizing your potential and your strength That Allah has given you Through the way he created you Through your experiences And utilizing that for the best way of the ummah As long as you are doing everything Within the bounds of the sharia We overcomplicate things a lot of the times so And look at this with the sahaba and their generation and by the way There's not even a hint Of any kind of disrespect to al-Anha And to Hassan ibn Thabit Amongst the companions There was not this the, oh, he's saying this or whatnot, and, 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 and you know, kind of putting him down and, and whatnot. And we see that narrations about other people uh, in, in different circumstances, but we don't find that with Hassan ibn Thabit They had that very much mindset of we're all in this together. And this is the point here that I want to bring forward, which is the point of what we're meant to be as men and women in this ummah. Uh, in, in the verses in Surah Tawbah أولياء وبعضهم, أولياء That the men and the women, they are allies to one another And they support each other in whichever way, in whichever capacity that they can That's the idea there Okay, Bismillah, so important points from that Number one, everyone has masculine and feminine traits Even everyone here, myself, everyone the manliest man even that you see in the most feminine of, of women, they all have some masculine traits and some feminine traits, because it's just the way that we, this is a word, it's a label that we've used to describe something that's typically for uh, the men. Number two, there's no expectation to change who you are as long as responsibilities are being fulfilled. As we mentioned before, those gender roles, as long as those are being fulfilled, then you are who you are as a woman and as a man. And you're part of the spectrum of men within the ummah, and the spectrum of women within the Ummah and we see amongst the Sahaba that spectrum existed as well and we have to ensure that we don't shame people just because of this, this, that or the other uh, Everyone must strive for the qualities that Allah loves and that's the other thing It's not enough to just say Oh, like a lot of people online they make it seem like it's praiseworthy to just have a masculine trait like, we should be assertive, we should do this So like, that's just a personality temperament that is not virtue that's not taqwa that's not actual um, you know, uh, 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 piety, that's not humility, that's not gratitude, that's not actual you know, um, uh, uh, justice, it's just a personality temperament, it's a strategy. The next step, which is the point, is to build from your traits the khulq, the actual character from that. So that your assertiveness comes to you, unwavering, uncompromising, standing for the, the deen of Allah and standing for justice. That that trait of agreeableness or harmony is pushing you towards harmony and unity in the ummah, bringing forth unity in the family, bringing love to other people. That's the idea. These are just personality traits. They become good when you decide to do something good with them. And if you don't have those personality traits, and you are who you are at this stage, then that's who you are. Accept who you are for who you are. Be who you are. And find what is the goodness and the khair that I can chase afterwards with who I am And oftentimes this is the big problem And I don't think, I actually don't think I have a side on this But it's an important point Which is that society will push man or woman to be like the opposite gender So you feel this pressure as a woman in particular Oh, I have to be like, I'm not, I'm not valuable unless I'm being like a man And then from the other side, maybe from religious circles You're pushed, oh no, no, no You're only valuable if if you're like this, 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 that So there's two sides pushing you different ways And you don't know if you being yourself is actually something that's valuable No, Allah created you how you are And Allah can love you for how you are If you use what He's given you for what is khair What is good That's what Allah wants from us Not this person's expectations and this person's expectations It's what does Allah want from us And fulfilling that That is the key and that is the essential Um and as I said, there will always be exceptions and whatnot to gender norms, and that's okay. And then from the collective, then we can make general understandings, general spaces for men, general spaces for women, that are then typical masculine and feminine spaces from the general. But for, as individuals, you have to figure out yourself, you as an individual, you as an individual couple, how is your relationship going to be based on each person's I- I- dynamic? And how is it going to work? And how is it going to move the ummah forward? And how is it going to move you closer to Allah Azza wa Jal? Now I do want to make this point very clear Because this is an important point not to be confused with what I talk about This is an important point, this is a major sin in Islam Which is imitating the opposite gender Right? Uh, uh, Tashabbahat the, the imitation you can say Of the woman And the imitation of the man From the other, so the opposite gender So there's a few ahadith about this And this one is actually in Sahih Bukhari Ibn Abbas عنهما, He narrates two versions that. La'na Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam either ala, on the one who is like the one who imitates man and imitates women, so like vice versa, or the muhanath, or the muhanath, or the uh, uh, so the muhanath is basically like an effeminate man. And it's a term just used for an effeminate man. So. Both of these are referring to the imitation of the opposite gender Now there's two ways you can look at it With choice and without choice With choice that's very clear Without choice Some of the scholars they say that Then if it's how that person is Then they should basically try to struggle with themselves So that they don't express it as much as as they should Now what exactly are we talking about? We're not talking about general temperaments and personality styles We're talking about very particular things So this is an explanation from Mullah Ali Qari. Uh, in his Sharh of Mishkat So he essentially, uh, he explained that uh, When it comes to the uh, imitation of women or men It's in regards to dress, in regards to color, in regards to voice, in regards to general behaviors So we can understand obviously someone who's dressing like a woman Who's trying to make their voice like a woman and that sort of thing That is, some, that is the thing that is cursed by the Prophet ﷺ but your general, you know, if, you're, if a person is just generally who they are, maybe a bit more assertive as a woman, or a bit more passive as a man, that's not imitating, you know. Do you understand the distinction there? I just want to make that very clear. Because this is a big part of our deen as well. So I don't want to make it to think, oh yeah, it's all free-for-all, you can do it. No, no, no. There's the concept of gender norms. There's a the concept of preserving those as a very valuable thing. And it's a way that societies can function, that you have these, you know, uh, these Temperaments that are matched to the biological thing that can actually lead to this so uh, to lead to fa- family success and societal success Okay, Bismillah, we are here now at the uh, Modern movements, so any questions at this point by the way you can throw up your hand Yes um, Is there where, where's the line is there a line or it seems to me that this, throughout this entire um, presentation it seems as though it's this personality trait um, complex is more of like a spectrum, or like a yeah, like a, like a yeah, like a spectrum where women are pushed towards uh, or naturally within the more feminine yeah uh, side of that spectrum, and men towards the more masculine side of that spectrum. Yeah, but then when it comes to the imitation of men and women, where where is Excellent that? question khair. Excellent question. So the question is basically So when we spoke about masculinity and femininity as temperaments is basically spectrum And that's the diagram you can see there um, But then when it comes to the fiqh of it Like imitating men, imitating women Then where is the red line So one of the red lines is choice You're not naturally like that But you are choosing to put on a dress But obviously that's the case but Even without choosing that would be the case But but you're choosing to speak in a very feminine way You're choosing to choose feminine colors But it's not necessarily your temperament The second one is without choice So there's a red line for them too So the red line for the choice is a lot further up The red line without choice So many of the scholars, they discuss Ibn Hajjan and others They talk about lifelong basically It's a struggle and resistance And they say your voice, your way you dress You should do it as the norms of how men dress So dress is a red line your, the colors as well, like that are known for this. They talk about henna as well. Uh, the classical ulama al Qari talks about this as well, like henna, nail polish, and these sorts of things. These are red lines, objective kind of things that you can see. So they a lot have to do with appearance. But when it comes to, to, to make it clear, when it comes to then your personality trait, like being a passive person, or being soft, or kind, or, or gentle, or not being interested in kind of cars and sports and these sorts of things, that obviously is. That's fine. There's no no problem with that. That's not imitating women just because a man is like that. Does that make sense? Excellent, perfect. Excellent question though. Okay. Feminism and the red pill. Please bear with me, I know we're going a bit late, but I think this is important stuff. We're just gonna whiz through this. First wave feminism. So feminism comes in, it's a European movement. This is not a Muslim movement, it's not coming from the Muslim world, it's a European movement because of the European challenges towards women in that time. And you'll see how remedial it was, just literally a hundred years ago Less than a hundred years ago in some, in some places So this feminism movement was born from that So in that vacuum, I mean you have the Catholics debating whether the women had souls or not Okay, that's what we're talking about here That's what we're dealing with, okay So first wave feminism Property rights, subhanAllah And the right to vote this, this is what it was about uh, And so look at the dates that you have there In Europe, 1984 was the last year that actually a European country finally ratified that women had the right to vote in the federal elections, you know, unrestricted. And you see France, 1944. Those guys who to say, oh, I'm champion of women, blah, 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 all this nonsense and 1944. And even Great Britain and whatnot, 1921. Um, Now we get to the other waves. So that's first wave feminism. And we're going to talk about Islam after, inshallah. Second wave feminism, it then transitioned to economic, political, social equality, basically. So really advocating for equality in everything. Before it was, at least let us own property and give us the right to vote. Now it became, well, we should be everything, equal, equal, in everything. And so this, the focus here, this is from the 60s, the focus was a lot on the wage gap that, women on a, that men, on average, were paid more than women with equal skill. Uh, harassment in workplace, things like boys clubs, elitism, and all these things like this. This is the characteristic of second wave feminism. Also within families and these sorts of things, this push for kind of ex- extreme level of equality uh, or sameness, you can say. That was second wave. Third wave, which was started in the 90s and until present, this you can call, start to call radical feminism. This is this idea that men and women, there are no real differences. This is socialized, and this is obviously being influenced, if you remember two weeks ago, postmodernism and critical theory and whatnot from Foucault and whatnot, who started to then talk about you know structuralism and whatnot. So uh, the radical feminism is this idea that men and women are actually there are no differences and that there's been this historical patriarchy throughout history that has always suppressed women and made men always in power and now it's our time to kind of break free of all that patriarchy and the point of third wave feminism is to destroy patriarchy everywhere um, and then also there was this ethnic racial component to it which is oh second wave in the workplace is all white uh, women basically and their problems but what about all the ethnic kind of women issues Fourth wave, which is very recent, uh, which you see very clearly up in the forefront, things like Me Too movement, sexual harassment, rape culture, and all these things. That's the focus there. Then you have this post-feminism amongst women we're talking about, which is basically feminism is no longer relevant. It's achieved its purpose. We have a generally good kind of status with the men. And all this other stuff is kind of a bit of noise. Okay. Areas of agreement with all of that, with Islam. Equality of the ruh. That's obviously the case. We know that the ruh is there for men and for women. That's not even a discussion. The right to vote, that was something from the beginning amongst the Muslims. I mean, the Prophet ﷺ himself took shura from his wives. Asma' binti Abi Bakr was, was, was someone whose shura was sought. There were muftiyat of the companions and of the later women. There were qudat even, some of them. In some places, that, wasn't as, uh, that was not as common. But muhadithat and people who are of fiqh, Aisha, it was said by, from the Tabi'un when we would ask about fiqh matters, Islamic law, we would go to Aisha, I mean, this thing is just insane. The right to property, not only property, the right to inheritance, how about that, huh? You're talking about property, and then you're saying this and that about our inheritance system. You didn't even have them able to own property until very recently. Don't talk about our inheritance system, which we had, mashallah, a very complex system that was developed, to the point that some... Orientalists even say that this is one of the miracles or this is one of the incredible things that the inheritance system of Islam was developed in this time revolutionary for women's rights and these sorts of things Um, and then uh, right to equitable pay I mean that's obviously a no-brainer within the Islamic point of view Um, and then obviously sexual harassment Muslims will be the strongest against this I mean the ghira that men, Muslim men have towards women in general this will anger the most, uh, you know uh, religious of Muslim men to know of any woman Muslim or non-Muslim who is receiving any harassment versus obviously from another culture That's something that people don't really care too much about. It's like oh, whatever Yeah, and, and you see that and that's why you have third fourth wave feminism to go, to kind of going back against that kind of culture uh, Where people are saying oh, that's okay, but Muslim men are the ones who are very much staunchly against anyone kind of violating The sanctity and dignity of a woman and of a lady incongruence so obviously the idea that there's no difference between men and women, Allah says in the Quran very clearly وَلَيْسَ kal untha." So it's clear, case closed Rejection of traditional gender roles As we discussed, there are family roles that are part of Sayyid, no difference between men and women uh, And the man is not like the woman, uh, as it's there uh, Rejection of traditional gender roles uh, So family roles, as we spoke about earlier, are part of the Islamic legal system So obviously we wouldn't accept that um, Hypersexualism, of course, is something that, with an Islamic point of view, would totally condemn. So there's this notion within feminism of the power of a woman is found in her sexuality, and men have privatized it within their own families for the only enjoyment of the husband, and that's part of the patriarchy and whatnot, but you should show it off to everyone and all this stuff, because that's where your power will come and all this stuff. Um, Using birth control as a means to engage in zina, and this is the big thing, birth control and the birth control pill, was huge revolution that spawned the sexual revolution and feminism jumped onto this as saying yes for, Muslim women, for, sorry, for, for all women they should take this so now they are not burdened with the physiological burden of sexual intimacy because they can control whether they get pregnant or not because obviously before that the women would keep the men in check so to speak because they're not going to engage in casual relationships because they can be left with a, 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 a child to have to look, for, for, you know, to have to look forward to to look after just themselves. So that's why men had to show their commitment, show this, 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 and whatnot, right? But then with this pill came and it became, yeah, now we're on the same playing field as men. Just like men can just do whatever they want, women can also do that. And we see where we are now today. Unrestricted abortion. Abortion in Islamic law is very complex as well, interestingly, and very nuanced. And there are a lot of ways in which abortion is permissible, but obviously the unrestricted kind of form is not there. Total rejection of the male opinion and This is a thing that you see a lot in 3rd wave, 4th wave feminism Like, oh you're just a man, you're mansplaining to me Like this would be like a huge There's a feminist here, they've had a heart attack That I've been here this entire time talking about femininity As a man towards a large group of Muslim women That would be like, what the heck is this? This is patriarchy, blah 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 Obviously as a Muslim, we understand our deen comes from the Prophet Muhammad And so of course, this is not a thing We respect knowledge in Islam And if there is a man that has knowledge, then men and women will take from him. And equally as well, if there's a woman who has knowledge, then the men take from the women as well. And this was the case from the tabi'un, from the salaf, and it was lost later on into the khalaf. Why? Because of the influence of the West, influence of Greek philosophy. Which in Greek philosophy, when you know about the Greeks and what they said about women, that was a whole other bunch of stuff. So when kalam came and the Greeks came, they, they disrupted this. But you always found amongst the muhadithun, amongst the hadith scholars who stayed away from that influence, there was a strong legacy of Islamic scholarship and women scholars, and women muhadithat, and women qurra, and you had many people who would have female teachers, that was not uncommon at all. You look at all the great, you know, very famous ones who produced much works, they had dozens, or at least up to ten, or five or six, Main female teachers Ibn Taymiyyah Ibn Hajj All of these scholars They had women teachers So this is something That we definitely need To revive in our times Because culturally There have been some issues We'll come to that I think that might be next But anyways um, uh, Yes, so scholars As we said So male opinion That's not a thing here It's about Knowledge. And of course, each gender should recognize their bias and recognize as a man or as a woman they may be coming to issues in a certain way and listen to the other gender to inform them of more social issues. But obviously from a religious point of view, we have no problem with that. Okay. Neutral feminism. So neutral feminism, these are things of feminism that, you know, it's basically Islam will not affirm or or negate. It's just that's there and you can maybe make an argument if you think socially it's an important thing. Encouraging women into stereotypical male professions. That's a haram, so to speak, to say, Oh, we want more ma- women engineers, or oh, we want more women, you know, in the mathematics department or philosophy department or something like this, because typically it's all men. Establishing female quotas in place of influence. Again, this is something that is neither uh, encouraged nor necessarily discouraged in Islam. Obviously the idea of uh, seeking women opinion is something that is a sunnah and is something that should be done. But we're talking about saying, like, you have to fill this quota, have to make sure that this is the case. That's neutral, like I said. That's neutral. We can debate that to, the, to our heart's content. OK. Now, the need for revival in Ummah, This is kind of what I was touching on earlier. And this is an important point amongst, for women. There is a lot of problems within our community in terms of our spaces towards women. And there's a reason why many women are drawn towards feminist ideas. And it's very important for us to address these here. So number one, poor access to religious education. And this is a huge issue. If you look at many of the uh, major institutions within the West and abroad, but not all abroad, but particularly in the West, it's very focused for men and very little access for women. It's not actually as open for women. Either the space that they're told to go to is like in a box They can't see the instructor, they can't see the speaker They don't know what's going on, etc, et It's not advertised to them You know, whatever it may be uh, th- This is a very poor kind of religious education There are certain movements, I won't na- name any names But after prayer, they'll, they'll read hadith together and whatnot and all this stuff It's like there's no concept of bringing women to actually include them in that reading of hadith and these sorts of things And that is not the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ at all the Prophet ﷺ would teach the men and the women together in the same masjid. And the Prophet ﷺ would assign a specific day for the women to teach them particularly as well. This is actually something that was the case. A woman came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Oh, the men, when they're with you, they're at the front, they ask the questions, they're surrounding you. What about us? So the Prophet ﷺ started to dedicate a day in the week for women in particular. So that is against the sunnah. Also, from a societal point of view, who are the people who are going to be raising our children? It will be our women. So, shouldn't they actually be the ones when it comes to religious education? Shouldn't they be the t- primary target then? I mean, the man is, uh, many men, they're going to go, they're going out, this, this, they don't have a time to spend much time with the children. And then they take this, learn this, and the khalas is finished. Shouldn't the women be our actual priority when it comes to this? Poor access to spiritual spaces as well. Because of the fact that it's an obligation for men and that the better salah for the woman is at home, then we think it's an excuse then to make within our spaces, within our masajid and whatnot, like little closet space, sometimes literally looks like a jail cell, and like put them there, not taking care of it all. It's locked all the time. You'll come in from Maghrib, it's locked, it's dark. Go around the back there, sister. No, not this, this, this. I mean, we're in a society now, the woman is going to university, they're going to school, they're out with their friends, et cetera, et cetera. Don't you think then, if they're out, the best place for them to come is the masjid? Like you're saying, oh no, 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 the best place for you to pray is in the home. Like, like, this is just common sense. That doesn't mean it's haram for them to come to the masjid. Not only that, the Prophet specifically said, don't prevent them from coming to the masjid. Not only that, we know for a fact there were companion women who insisted on praying in the masjid, very well knowing that hadith. And, obviously in our times, wouldn't you want... Muslim men and Muslim women to come to the masjid of all spaces? but you rather than go to the mall, go to the university, that's better for them? No, masjid? No, 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 masjid? No. It just makes no sense. And it's honestly sad. Uh, lack of involvement in women's opinions and perspectives. Lack of female scholars, and that links to the point of that, that aspect as well. This is the thing, you know, subhanAllah, when I went to Palestine, I went to Jerusalem and Aqsa, I was actually shocked. Because of the amount of women that I saw there that were basically in charge of Aqsa. They were the ones who were running the classes. They were the ones who were doing the Quran circles. They were the ones doing the fiqhs. I was walking through and there was this sister that was, or Shaykhah rather, that was uh, teaching fiqh of uh, siyam actually. A very intense, very detailed, very fiery, mashallah as well. As you're just walking through the masjid and you're just seeing and witnessing this, and there's women all around and they're studying and they're learning. And the women there, subhanAllah, Aqsa, by the way, you go to Aqsa, the, there's obviously a space for women to pray. But after the Salah, as it was in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu And when you look actually overseas, they are actually more forward than us here in the West Like, we're talking about, oh, that's, you're going to say to me, Akhi, oh, you're being liberals or here, you're this, 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 that or the other, blah, blah, blah And, you know, this, and I'm like, I'm just telling you what's happening literally Masjid Al-Aqsa right? that's, uh, All I'm saying is, can we not have a Masjid that's like the model of Masjid Al-Aqsa That's all I'm saying uh, this is not some revolutionary thing This is the way that it's always been Mainstream Islam That's why you had all these names Subhanallah More than 8,000 female scholars This one, Sheikh uh, Akram Nadwi He wrote the Muhaddithat 8,000 w- Muslim women she- He gave the biography, brief biography of all of them Multiple volumes That's how it is You can think in the culture we have here in the West It's not just in Brisbane It's in the West completely You would think, how is that even possible? Right? But it's because we come with our own cultural backgrounds and force this on this and whatnot and just give no concept and and just honestly future thinking as well. Um, So, yes, that's what I wanted to say about that. Bismillah. Okay, let's finish up with this one inshallah. The red pill movement. So the red pill movement is the counterpart to the feminist movement and it started really recently. So we're talking 2012 on Reddit, all places. And basically there's always been this undercurrent of men who are upset with the changing roles and increasing women's rights in the 20th to 21st century. Um, And there's this, the red pill movement, basically the idea is that men are dominated in society and women are the ones who hold the influence and the power. And there's very strong focus amongst them on relationship dynamics and saying, and basically this focus on developing quote-unquote game uh, from men to basically be able to win over women and act in certain ways and whatnot. That's the focus of uh, much of the red pill movement and then there's the black pill movement which is now saying no, we're not going to change how we are and you know women and they're upset that women only go after good looking men and that they would not go after them if they're ugly and whatnot, all this stuff honestly this is the level of maturity that's there in this one <laughs> and, um, but subhanAllah, the black pill is basically what they say the solution is not to play their game but it's to change the game And they say that by basically mass murders, shootings and whatnot, and these are the people that inspire these people who shoot up like women and and all these things that have happened, mass shootings you see in the West. So that's the black pill, as an offshoot of the red pill.